I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Performance reviews, performance management, performance conversations. At your work, we can't live with them, can't live without them. Many people, supervisors and the supervised, have horror stories about performance management. Today's guest, Dr. Lynn Stavridis of PerformanceWise Consulting, makes her living helping people in organisations get the most out of performance management. We talk about the process done well and not so well, whether it's a tool to be our best or to manage recalcitrance, and we land on some pro tips to steer clear of the traps and experience the exercise as a positive. Dr. Lynn Stavridis, welcome. Can you start by telling us how is it that you can make a living out of coaching organisations and people around performance management? Morning, Steve. I guess what I've discovered over years of doing this is that we assume that people who are very smart knowledge workers and good at their craft and their disciplines will also have good people management skills. And it's just not the case, particularly when it comes to providing performance feedback and particularly having difficult conversations. So most people, unfortunately, in their lifetimes have had some bad experiences of feedback and call anything a performance conversation. And my observation would be that people's breathing goes up. There is something about the formalised process in an organisation that um, can be very anxiety-provoking for people. And my job is all about saying, look, it's not a mystery, it's not rocket science, here are the basic core skills, here are the things that will help you. The other thing is at a systemic level, organisations are usually quite poor at thinking through the processes why would people want to do this, okay? What's in it for them? And, in fact, there's a raft of really fundamental reasons for individuals to engage with this process. And if I'm a staff member in an organisation, there's more in it for me to participate than to do otherwise. But unless you get people on board with that and unless you get managers role modelling their belief in the system, you don't create the so-called performance culture and you will never get great success with these these systems. So we're starting with a failure of marketing in some ways. It's, it's a change process. It's about cultural change and, and we know that any significant cultural change in organisations takes time and you really need to do the marketing, if you want to call it that, to get people on board and really committed to the fact that this isn't just window dressing and it isn't just about catching out your bad performers. It's about something far more basic than that. The reality is is that these days in 99% of organisations, we can't offer people a job for life anymore. So what do we offer them instead? Smart organisations recognise that it's more than just words to say that It's our talent, our people that really turbocharge this organisation in any sort of competitive environment. And what we can offer people like that is capability development and skills for life. So the contract becomes 
okay, we might not be able to keep you on for your whole career, but as a consequence of working with us and for us, we will make sure that your skill set is developed and they're transferable skills. When you go, they go with you, okay? And that's our that's our give to you, okay? Any smart person's going to jump on that opportunity, I would think. So it's a non-cash benefit in a sense to staff. What are the other reasons, the other, you know, if we're looking at purpose of performance management, what else is there? Basically, you end up with a, a far more engaged workforce. And it's a bit telling when you look at the engagement figures from Gallup polls for Australian workforces. We're one of the worst in the world. About 14% of employees say they're engaged with their, with their organisation. And when you look at the reasons in climate surveys for why that's so poor, in the top three will always be things to do with leadership and leadership specifically around providing feedback and equitable access to opportunity. So we don't do that well. And your primary vehicle, or one of your primary vehicles for doing that is, surprise, surprise, a really robust performance management system. So that's that's your first one. The other is actually much more hard edge. There's good research evidence now, probably since about the last 10, 15 years, that shows us that organisations that invest in an integrated performance management system and train people in how to use it and really get managers on board and walking the talk will outperform on whatever their task metrics are any other organisation that doesn't have those things in place. So, I mean, whatever, however an organisation measures its performance success, whether that's KPIs or balanced scorecard or whatever systems they use, there's evidence that, that shows that on those hard data these sorts of um, systems will enable an organisation to outstrip others that don't. They're pretty good reasons for wanting to engage with this. You headed me off at the past, Lynn. Mm -hmm. It's sounding as though even the smallest of organisations has to have some sort of performance management in place, even if it's informal, because what would happen if there was no feedback given? Yeah, okay, fine. Well, we see that all the time, don't we? What happens is... You've got people who feel disgruntled, people who are looking for opportunities to white and others. So you see a lack of collaboration. You also see a lot more significant underperformance issues. You know, you'll see performance go down and everybody looks to the person responsible, you know, direct supervisor to actually do something about that. And if they don't do anything, then it's not just the, the two individuals, the employee, the underperforming employee and the manager that are affected. It's the whole team because the team looks at that and says, oh, okay, well, you know, this is a crap place to work. They don't, they don't deal with these issues. The other thing is, is that at an organisational level, you're really vulnerable if you do have underperformance issues because you've got no evidence trace, Okay. And if you basically dismiss someone or, you know, in some way disadvantage them, you'll find yourself in fair work tribunals, okay? You'll have high turnover, basically. It's a truism that people don't leave organisations, they leave managers. So if you're not getting satisfaction and feedback and a sense that you're progressing in your career and you're being dealt with fairly, etc., people look around and the best talent will walk. Okay, so it's a no-win. Yeah, it sounds as though, Lynn, that performance management done badly is not that different from performance management not done at all. Yeah, I'd agree with that. 
And in fact, I'd go even further and say that unless you really invest into this, don't bother. All you do is you actually muddy the waters even more. And when you do try to implement something that's well articulated, you've got a longer cultural change because you've got so much negativity. That, quite frankly, is the situation in well over 50% of the organisations that I've worked with in my career. The way I've got, you know, to redress some real historical issues around this. So if it's a small organisation, you don't need to have a particularly sophisticated system. It can be as simple as a one-pager. What are you doing well? Where do you need development? What can I support you in? And what are the key metrics here? Okay, so, and you said before something really important. You talked about the importance of informal feedback. And again, the research is clear. One of the top things that really enables people to engage well with these sorts of systems is not the once a year or the twice a year, you know, let's do the planning at the front end and then let's do the review and the assessment at the back end. It's actually not those two engagements that gives this thing its its real utility. It's the informal catch-ups through the year. So I'm not talking about micromanaging where you as a manager or as a supervisor always need to be looking at someone and seeing how they're going. You know, you set it up properly, then it's the employee who drives this and the, the expectation you have as a manager is that they come to you whenever you have, you know, supervisory feedback or, you know, catch-up conversations around the water cooler or whatever it is, and they're updating you with how they're going and whether they need help, okay? So, you know, what's working well and where they're struggling a bit because that shows you that you're really developing some strong performance cultural attributes, okay, when people aren't afraid to talk about how they're going. Yeah, so presumably that would sort of informally tell you that you've got an, a, you know, a higher trust environment, an environment where people believe that it's fair, a fair workplace. Absolutely. And it is about the relationship. I mean, we are talking about systems that are premised on a one-to-one feedback process. And to be frank, that's the majority of systems, even when people have strong team cultures. Most organisations still invest in individual as opposed to team-based systems. It's about the relationship that you build, okay? And the stronger the relationship, the stronger the trust, the higher the expectations that you will get candid feedback, not the, you know, the dance that sort of says, well, this is a bit hot, I'll stay away from this one, but someone that actually with good intent gives you feedback that's going to help you along the way. There's so many feedback models, you know, but I quite like the one that says commend, commend, recommend, okay? Very positive and that, that's really what you're about because what manager doesn't want to get their employees and their team working really well, contributing discretionary effort, which you don't get when people feel they're being treated poorly or inequitably, and you get that when there's a sense of unfairness, why wouldn't you want that? Well, particularly then if, you know, the, the long-standing quality data says that 85% of the failures are due to the process, not the person. So, yeah, why wouldn't you start and look at that? Yeah, absolutely, you know. And that basically, you know, will be interesting to see how that played out this year during COVID because of, you know, the fact that suddenly a whole raft of managers had to actually trust that their employees <laughs> were doing the right thing because they couldn't watch them, okay? And, again, that pushes it back to where it really should be 
And that's show me the task completion, okay, the output, not so much the, you know, the means by which, which you get there. Having said that, word of caution, I'm not suggesting for a moment that it's only task output that's important. That, again, is one of the key reasons why these systems fail. People too narrowly define what's meant by performance. So, for example, I might have a team or one or two people on my team who are brilliant at getting the task completed, but their behaviour is appalling. It's unethical, it's not aligned to any of the core organisational values, and they white ant everybody else around them. So that's not good performance. Lynn, we might come back another day and talk about the folly of KPIs. There's rich pickings there. (laughs) Is there what? Yeah. If we move to the transaction, if you like, that's really dumbing it down, but what would be your sort of pro tips for, first of all, supervisors and then employees in preparing and, and going into performance management conversations? I guess for... Uh, managers, you have to be someone who's in the position to see enough, a representative sample of what the person whom you're supposed to be supervising actually does, okay? So you're not relying on third-party feedback. You've got some evidence-based observations. So well-prepared with lots of examples that you can provide feedback about. Balance your feedback, okay? So uh, it's very rare to find someone whose performance is all one way or all the other. Even your high performers, who, who, by the way, usually get next to nothing in terms of quality feedback in organisations, which is a real danger for an organisation because they'll walk with their feet. risk. Yeah. So be well prepared, balance your feedback, make a conversation. We call them now more performance conversations than performance review. And that reflects the fact that for a supervisor, this is one engagement where it's not about the power dynamic. You've got to work hard to diminish that. This is about exploring, discussing, letting the employee lead the conversation. So you need to be prepared with lots of examples and lots of questions okay, to explore and make sure that you, you really actually believe this, okay? Your role is to challenge, resource, provide clarity, all those things, okay? It's not about to catch people doing stuff that's wrong. And I guess for employees, it's about recognising that this is your career. It's not up to your manager to do it for you. You need to be equally well prepared You need to have lots of examples that show why you see how you've done the way you see it. Most modern systems now will start with the review process being initiated by the employee, okay? And the employee will do a draft against the goals and metrics that were agreed and they will actually, you know, come prepared with that. Some organisations ask if they send that to the manager beforehand. A little bit imbalanced, but it's okay. So you have a bit of a heads up of what the person's perception is. Again, ask good questions, not not generic questions like how many times do I see people from the staff or employee level ask a question of their manager like, so how am I doing? You ask a generic like that, you'll generally get a generic response which will either be, oh, fine, what did you just learn? Absolutely nothing, okay? other than a good overall warm, fuzzy feeling, or even worse, and well, now that you mention it, 
and you'll get a brick bat, neither of which are reflective of the whole totality of that person's performance. So for, for an employee, be well prepared, again, be prepared to also talk about your career goals, not just your performance goals. This is your one opportunity in a year, if no other time, to really talk about where you see yourself going, what you want and how you want your manager to help you. You always need to be cognizant of the fact that there is a power imbalance. This is your manager. As you would be with anybody in the workplace, be respectful in the way you seek feedback and in the way you give it. In the way it's given. You've actually touched on the area I wanted to go next, which is around difficult conversations, because... For a lot of workers, employment is less secure than it used to be. Many employees will go into that conversation not wanting to say the wrong thing. Have you got anything else to add in terms of how do you have those difficult conversations in a way that the employer sees the benefit? From an employer perspective, I mean, it is true that there are compliance angles to performance management systems. So you've got the duality of engagement and compliance. So, and that's where, you know, the HR component or involvement in these systems tends to be more towards the compliance part. You really want to be sure that people have sufficient exposure to what's been happening in the workplace. So you're authority in what you're talking about. Okay. Again, one of the reasons why these systems struggle is that employers don't train both sides of the equation and then wonder why people approach these conversations with trepidation. If you're really going to manage performance and build capability, then you've got to be really clear about what the expectations are. And organisations need to be really clear about here's what we stand for, here's our core outputs, here's how your work contributes to them. So what's the line of sight for people? And also absolutely responsive to significant episodes of underperformance, okay? Managers by nature, it's a very natural thing, will avoid difficult conversations. We all do because they can be hard to open and you don't necessarily know how someone's going to react. So a lot of the work I do is actually writing a couple of tried and true opening phrases for how do I start this conversation? How do I initiate it without getting people offside? You go in with a really judgmental attitude, forget it, not going to get, go, get anywhere. But if you go in with an exploratory attitude, then you get a conversation going you're more likely to get some insights. You're more likely to get agreement, which organisationally is what you must have if you're going to turn someone's performance around. Organisations that do that well, and there are a couple that deal with the underperformance issue well, generally will tell me that they don't end up dismissing most of these people. What happens is either the person recognises that they are way out of fit with this organisation, it's not a capability question, it's a motivational question. They don't want to. They have no desire to try and aspire to what's being asked, so they leave, okay? That's a good resolution, okay? So your job as a, as a manager is not to be punitive about that, just to be really clear about what's the guidelines here, what's expected and how you're tracking. If you can't articulate where someone's not performing, then you've got some work to do. 
Okay, I learned that at a really early career stage myself when I was working in in a welfare field where, you know, there's a strong code of practice there, but it's about behaviours. And I was looking at someone and thinking, "Mm, they're not meeting that standard, that professional standard. But you can't go into somebody and say something like, you're building client dependencies because they're likely to look at you and say, huh? Okay, you have to actually say what you observed and how you interpret that and why you see it that way and then stop and get, you know, get some feedback from the other person about did they not realise this? Is it a skill issue? Uh, Do they not care about this? Is it a motivational or a values-based issue? Or is it just really lack of awareness? And there are different levers you're going to apply, but you've got to articulate what the issue is, okay? But fundamentally, what you're trying to do from the organisational perspective is get agreement to a plan for change to improve performance and then follow through. Again, one of the reasons why these systems fail is because I watch managers do a lot of quite heavy lifting in designing a good action plan, getting engagement and agreement from the person to work towards that, and then they don't follow through. And again, this is not about micromanaging. This is about setting clear milestones. A mistake can be to say, well, your performance is at this level and I need it to be at this much higher level. Get agreement from the person. Yeah, yeah, okay, I understand that I agree. And then the assumption is that the person actually knows how to close that gap, and they don't. You need to build the steps in, and the steps are your milestone platforms at which the employee comes back to you and gives you a progress update. You're not micromanaging. You're just saying, well, we'll meet on this, this, and this date. You can fill me in on how you're going. Okay? Of course you're watching, but, you know, it's more about them telling you. Yeah. For the employee, that needs a level of assertiveness in terms of not just agreeing because there might be a power imbalance, but to articulate what supports are required. What are your pieces of advice there? Oh, my number one would be define what you're talking about. Again, really common for me to see action plans and agreements that are peppered with subjective terminology, like I will support you. And I might, as an employee, have an expectation that that means you're going to meet with me whenever I need on a weekly basis or a daily basis or whatever. You're going to handhold me through this process where the manager's assumption about that is that I'll support you if you come to me and ask for help. So you get people working across purposes without knowing that and then both feel really aggrieved when things don't turn out well, okay? So be clear about expectations, be clear about follow-up, be clear about the ex- the metrics, okay? If people don't meet these, then there has to be a diminishing band of acceptability, okay? It's not okay to keep allowing slippage on important things in a person's role. If they can't do it, they can't do it. And if you've genuinely offered all sorts of appropriate development and appropriate, you know, feedback and support, etc. And the person just can't get there. They're trying and you genuinely believe they're trying but they can't get there. That's a different issue. That's an HR discussion about appropriateness in role. Lynn, one of the games that might get played either by people leaders or by employees is a bit of whataboutism. 
or look over there. You know, why can't you achieve that because over there they are or why are you asking me to do this when that's happening over there? How do you unpack that and bring it back to a fair, trusting conversation? Okay. Essentially what that is is a red herring. For the employee, from the employee's perspective, that's a red herring. Oh, look at them. They're not doing that. The manager's response to that is, well, that may be so. We're now discussing your performance. So just bring it straight back to what you're focused on. For the manager, if they're doing that, well, why aren't you doing that? They all are. That's a rating error. You can't compare apples and oranges. And, for example, the manager might be comparing their newest employee to someone who's been around a lot longer, or they might be comparing an employee whose performance is actually acceptable, but when you compare it to the star over there, they're not meeting the same standard. Well, no, they're not because that person's performance is so much more sophisticated and better. They're a higher performer, okay? Not everybody will have the same level. So they're red herrings and they're, they're rating errors, okay? So it's just focus on what it is that you need to be talking about and stick to the knitting. That's probably my greatest tip around, and around that sort of stuff. And, again, language is really, really critical, okay? Stay away from labels, stay away from comparisons. You're talking about what you know to be true, evidence-based about this person's behaviour on the job and their performance on the job. And if, by the way, you don't know that because it's an area of work that's too new, it's too untried, you have no um, comparative benchmarks, then the agreements front-end are around, okay, what do two capable people in this field think performance is going to look like? And then you modify and review as you go through. Right? Good stuff. Just to close out, your pro tips for those in, and it might be HR and it might be organisational development, who are designing performance management systems. What are the key things to think about? Keep it simple. <laughs> HR departments, there's so much good technology nowadays that there are some quite good uh, sophisticated online PM systems. I'm always going to be a bit of a Luddite and say that this is about a personal engagement, not a technological system. And a lot of the time the systems are overcomplicated, whether they're paper-based or, or tech, and people get really frustrated with them and disengage, okay? Never let a form or a system get in the way of a good conversation, which is what this is about. I guess the other is making sure that it's driven from top down, and by that I mean your exec team needs to be unequivocally clear about what we stand for, what are our key metrics, how that percolates down through an organisation, because let's face it, most organisations are hierarchical, and what do they expect of their senior managers, managers, etc., with respect to this. The other would be make sure that you invest in training Okay, sounds terrible when you say that as a trainer, doesn't it? But basically, if you don't give people the people management skills, then this will fall over. And and one of the classics is to train managers, not staff. Okay, you might give staff less intensive training because they don't drive the system, but you still got to give them some training or some resources in how to provide feedback, how to ask for feedback how to talk with authenticity about their achievements, not, not the BS factor, but about the reality of what they're doing. And the other one would be a, an inbuilt support for managers, okay? 
It always surprises me how lonely managers feel when it comes to providing performance feedback, as if I'm the only person who's ever had to deal with that sort of challenging circumstance or that sort of, you know, really difficult conversation. That's never true. But, of course, because we have one-on-one engagements and people don't talk about what happens in their discussions, then nobody knows. It's like this closed circuit. So one way around that is to just build in a bit of a circuit breaker. So whatever you want to call it, a community of practice or support groups, etc. you know, any organisational unit, there's a coterie or a cohort of, of supervisors who all are responsible for this, get them together, get them talking about not the individual performance per se, hard to keep them out of that, but the challenges, you know, oh, and the successes, okay. Oh, I've been dealing with this sort of issue and I found this and this and this was a really useful technique. Oh, great. You know, and people think, oh, okay, I haven't tried that before. So you, you get a much more relaxed and sophisticated attitude towards feedback and performance management and that actually has a rub-off effect right through, okay. So it's really, really useful to do that if you can. When people are looking for a job, Lynn, mm. how can they smell how well performance management's done in an organisation? Because every employer is going to say, you know, we're great to work for, come and, come and uh, work with us. Mm-hmm. What are the signs? A good question. It depends on your level, of course. Um, the more senior you go, the more you can actually ask questions, okay? But I'm going to ask a few questions about, so what sort of performance system do you have? in this organisation, who drives it? You know, if you're really cheeky, you could ask a question of someone, like if it's a manager to manager, um, if I'm interviewing for a managerial position, I'm probably going to ask something like, what sort of feedback do you expect to get as a manager? Ask a few pertinent questions like that. Do your research. Get online. Most organisations will have quite a lot in the public domain. Some of them, particularly public sector, will have information up there about what sort of system they've got. Again, all that tells you is the tools and the infrastructure. doesn't tell you actually how it's working. If you know someone who works there, ask them, okay? But otherwise, in a recruitment process, particularly now, because it's really difficult, it's quite a tight market and has been for a long time, those questions are perhaps not as easy to ask. Lynn, great to talk today. We might come back and talk about KPIs again sometime. Thanks, Thanks, Lynn. Thanks, a pleasure. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you like the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.